You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Well, Citizens Church, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, if even online. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeff Saladin, and I'm one of six lay elders here at Citizens Church, and we're taking a break from our series in Colossians this week to talk about a verse that I think is is very relevant for where we all find ourselves. In fact, I was scheduled to preach this uh, sermon back in March, but it got postponed due to the quarantine. And so this is a sermon that the Lord put on my heart before COVID and before the events of recent weeks, and I'm excited to share it with you today. And it's been my joy to serve as an elder since our church was launched as a campus of the Village Church back in 2014. And I I can't believe it's been that long. We're coming up on our sixth anniversary as a congregation. And the Lord's done so many beautiful things among us during that time. He's healed relationships. He's brought new physical life and new spiritual life. We've adopted babies. We've celebrated marriages. Some of us have gone on to see Jesus face to face and we've celebrated their lives too. There have been many difficulties we've endured together as a a church, but through it all, the Lord's been nothing but faithful to us, and it's been my joy to to walk with you. In addition to serving as an elder, my family and I have, have for years served in our preschool ministry and more recently our elementary school ministry. And when we're not in a global pandemic, I get to lead worship in Kid City regularly, but my favorite part is that I get to lead the second grade boys at the nine o'clock service each week. And I love leading those boys. And I must say that my love for that ministry is a little ironic for me, because if you would have asked me 10 or 15 years ago, I would have told you that nothing on earth scares me as much as preschool or elementary school kids. But a couple of things happened. First, the Lord gave my wife Allison and me our own children, and I found myself begging the Lord for their souls. I found myself begging that the Lord would raise up people in our church who would come alongside Allison and me uh, as we proclaim the gospel to our own kids. And the Lord's been so faithful in providing those people. But second, I became an elder at this church, and I realized that the children that run up and down our halls are not merely the church of tomorrow. More importantly, they are the church of today. And, and, and they deserve to hear an articulate presentation of the gospel. They have the capacity to be challenged in their theological understanding, and they have the potential to worship the Lord in heart, mind, and spirit. And so Allison and I decided that we would step into the gap, no matter how difficult and no matter my own childish insecurities. And so we did. We started serving in our next-gen ministry, and I must tell you, I dearly love those second-grade boys. I pray for them regularly. We've had boys describe through tears how they never met their dads or how they miss their home states because many people have moved into the area. We've had kids describe how their hearts are sick with sin and they need a savior. And in fact, I miss a lot of things about meeting together church. I miss worshiping together. I miss praying together. I miss opening the word together. But I really miss sharing the gospel with those second grade boys. So, Citizens Church, thank you for letting me serve as an elder here. And it's been a joy to serve 
uh, as, a, as a volunteer in our elementary school ministry. So hopefully you're already there, but open your Bibles to James 1, and we will read James 1, verses 2 to 4. But before we hop into those verses, I want to remind us of who we are. The name of our church is Citizens Church, and the word citizens is certainly a political name, but we don't mean it in the context of our city or our state or our nation. We use the word citizens to point to our membership in a larger body, an eternal kingdom that is led by a good and sovereign king, an influential kingdom that reveals itself regularly in our world, and a powerful kingdom that began the moment a very dead Jesus took that first breath in the tomb. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, we live by a different set of rules than the world around, around us. Whereas the world seeks to classify the weak and vulnerable as less than, we see value in every human being, regardless of disability or even birth. And whereas the world would rank the ethnic differences between us, we see ethnicity and race as beautiful concepts that are made most beautiful when unified under the lordship of our king. And whereas the world might see money or status as things to hoard, we see those things as instruments of God's grace to, to share with others. We are citizens of the kingdom, and we think and we live differently because of that fact. Our passage today, friends, is one of those passages that reminds us that we respond to trials differently than the world does. We respond to trials with a kingdom mindset and not a worldly mindset. So I want to give you a key point to remember for this week. This is what we do each week in our elementary ministry. And here we go. All God's children face really hard things, but for God's children, those things lead to Jesus. And I'm going to repeat it, and I want you to repeat after me, just like we do with the kiddos. All God's children face really hard things, but for God's children, those things lead to, to Jesus. As I said, we're in the book of James, and not surprisingly, this book was written by James the Apostle, and James was Jesus' brother and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. As a pastor, he was aware of the difficulties that his people faced. And in many ways, this book is a manual on how to face and respond to those difficulties. James tells us to live like Jesus, not like everyone else. And in so many ways, this is an action book. James tells us that our minds are to be set on God alone and that we're not to vacillate between God and the world. And if you're looking for a book of the Bible that is as practical as can be, I would encourage you to read James. So let's read the text. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. I know that many of us have read this verse during these past months. I've quoted it to myself. I've quoted it to some of you. And Corey Butler, our students minister, even quoted it to us all a few weeks ago as we celebrated our high school graduates who have just endured the strangest senior year of all time. 
But this is a verse that I've struggled with for years. And it all started back in 2015. In January of 2015, I decided to study the book of James. It's not a long book. It can be read in one sitting. So I decided to read it every day for 30 days and just let the broad narrative of the book sink into my soul. But what I've remembered most from that month is this passage. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. And I've remembered that verse, I think, because I've struggled and struggled with it. I've fought against it. I've denied it. I've avoided it until I realized that trials have in so many ways defined big parts of my life and the life of my family and the life of our church. I have a vague memory from childhood of someone describing the Christian journey as a journey from one mountaintop to another. But so often, the Christian journey feels like a journey from one dark valley to another. Nine years ago, my father-in-law died of cancer. And his absence has been one of those defining trials in the life of our family. His name was Jerry Webb, and he was wonderfully intimidating. He was a six-foot-four police officer and one of the most athletic and flat-out brilliant people I have ever met. Jerry was not raised in a Christian home, and the Lord stirred his affections later on in life. But he loved Jesus dearly, and he was determined to proclaim the gospel to his three daughters. I married his middle daughter. He was a great granddad, and he's been gone now for nine years. And it's been tough. It's been very tough. In front of our house, we have a large oak tree, and there's a swing there that used to swing on the tree in front of his house. And he used to push my daughter in that swing when she was young, but he's not there to push my kids anymore. His absence, friends, does not feel like pure joy. His absence has been one of the the, the biggest trials of my life. And given that we find ourselves in the midst of a global pandemic, And given that we find ourselves facing the consequences of hundreds of years of racial sin, I know for a fact I'm not the only one here dealing with trials. We've all been dealing with them. The fact that we're meeting today over the internet speaks to the trials that we've been enduring. And even beyond the broader events of our nation, I'm not the only one in this room who's lost a loved one or experienced a career setback or witnessed betrayal or found myself lost in my own sin. Many of us have, and many of us are experiencing these things right now, and it is miserable. Our trials are so profound that I think the temptation when we read verses like verse 2 is to conclude that God is, at best, absurd, and at worst, cruel. In the middle of our pain, this verse can seem diabolical. What do you mean, count it as all joy when you face trials of various kinds? It can seem like the boss who says, if you just keep working hard, there'll be a promotion in your future, but that promotion never comes. Or it seems like the doctor who says, if you just stick with this treatment long enough, healing will come, but the healing never comes. Or it can even seem like a black man who is told just to work hard and someday you'll earn cultural respect, but that respect never comes. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, know 
The trials I've endured have not felt like pure joy. But friends, if our passage ended there, this verse would be diabolical. But there's good news. The verse gives us a hope that there's something else going on. The verse doesn't say it is joy when you face trials of various kinds. It says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. My friend, that difference is critical. The verse doesn't say that these trials are joyful in themselves. In fact, the Bible is explicit in condemning evil. And it's explicit in acknowledging our pain. You know, you might not believe me. Maybe you're the kind of person that just says, buck up. Just look at the bright side of life. And I've heard Christians say that before. But when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, God called the act and the resulting trials evil. God condemned the Israelites' Egyptian slavery as evil. Read the Psalms. Hear David scream to the Lord in despair. Read Lamentations. Read Jesus' condemnation of injustice. There's no holding back the reality of the difficulties we face. No, these trials are not joy. And friends, think about what we've endured lately. We've lost over 100,000 fellow Americans over the past few months in this pandemic. We've seen our fellow black countrymen killed on our cell phones. We should mourn whatever our personal views are on how we got here. And whatever our personal views on where we are on where we go from here, these deaths are tragic and these trials are not joy. But the verse says, count them as joy. Consider them joy. Characterize them as joy. How is that possible? How do we count them as joy? Do our trials define us? Are we slaves to our trials? Is there a larger truth to our suffering? Good news, my friends. James did not intend these verses to be read in isolation. Let's look at verse 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Friends, our trials are not trials for trials' sake. They lead somewhere. They produce something. If we persevere in faith, they produce a virtue. They produce steadfastness. My dad is a chemist. And when I was a kid, he and my mom started the strangest family business of all time. There in our garage in Orange County, California, my parents started a glue business. And they go ahead and laugh. Everybody always does. I've heard all the jokes about growing up in the glue industry. I've heard about how sticky it is. I've been asked if we have a horse factory. I've been asked if we live like Breaking Bad. I've been asked how often I sniff the glue. It's a real business. And when I tell people that the airplanes they fly on are largely glued together, amazingly, somehow the jokes stop. But I grew up in the glue business. Our company was the family farm. I worked there before school, after school, weekends, school breaks, even skipped school a couple times to work for my dad. I drove the truck. I operated the forklift. I filled the drums or the tubes. I mixed chemicals. I worked in ovens. This was our family farm. And the companies persevered. 
My parents have owned, owned it now for over 30 years. My brother is now the CEO. But when I was a kid, life was not easy. Cash flow was strong at some times and weak or non-existent at other times. There were months when we just didn't have much money. In fact, we sold our car one time just to make the house payment. And my dad certainly could have had an easier life if he would have stayed working for someone else. And I asked him one time why he and my mom took the risks they did to start this company. And he said he started the company for two reasons. Number one, he wanted to provide for his family in a field that he loved, which was science. Number two, he said he wanted to build a company that people actually wanted to work for. And it's always been the second point that has hit me. He believed his company should be seen as a true asset to his employees, a place where families could grow, where ministries could be supported. He had, in a word, a redemptive vision for his business. There was a business problem. People hated their jobs, and he wanted to redeem business by building a company that was actually helpful to people. Redemption. My parents had a vision for redemption. They believed they could build redemption into their company. And, and if they did that, perhaps God would use the business to bless people. The vision for redemption made the hard times worthwhile. When cash flow dried up, when the IRS came calling, when the truck broke down, or when the batch of product was ruined, they never lost their vision for redemption. Gospel redemption, a vision for a beautiful future, but there's more to it than that. The reality is there's so much about our family and our own hearts that we would have never known if my parents hadn't started that company and endured the trials that they endured. And there's so much about God that we would have never known if my parents hadn't started that company and we endured the trials we endured. Human beings must face trials in order to learn. It is a fact of human existence. Suffering is in so many ways what it means to be truly human. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, puts it this way. Now we see why grace, why we find grace not at the high points of our lives, but in the valleys and depths at the bottom. No human heart will learn its sinfulness and impotence by being told it is sinful. It will have to be shown, often in brutal experience. No human heart will dare to believe in such a free, costly grace unless it is the only hope. It is a combination of hard circumstances, insight from the biblical gospel of atonement for sin, and prevailing prayer that can move us to wonder and amazement even in the darkest, deepest places. My friends, we have to be shown our sinfulness. We have to be shown our weakness. If we're just told about it, it's not enough. We have to live it to understand God's good response to it. My parents had to endure many difficult years of business to understand their profound need for Jesus. And we're all going through the same thing. In this difficult season, what are we learning about ourselves? We've learned that we don't have control over our health the way we thought we did. 
We've learned that we don't have control over our, our, our money and our resources the way we thought we did. We've learned that we don't have control over our family life quite the way we thought we did. We've learned that our media and our politics are far more deeply broken than we thought they were. Friends, this growing awareness is good news because it's causing us to live in the truth. We are coming to understand the true nature of our existence. That truth-telling leads to virtue. It leads to steadfastness. Friends, that's good news. Again, verse 2 says something crazy. Count trials as joy. And if we ended it there, it would be crazy. But verse 3 tells us that our trials are being redeemed. There's a redemptive story being told. Our trials, if we persevere, are building within us virtue, the virtue of steadfastness. The trials are helping us to learn and grow in endurance. And with every trial that comes, our ability to endure another trial grows. And ultimately, we grow into something beautiful. And what is that? We grow in Christ-likeness. Let's look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Perfection, completion. Let's talk about those things. First, perfection. In Matthew 5, Jesus talks about loving your enemies. In fact, this is another one of those crazy Bible passages, like what we're reading today in James. Jesus knows it's impossible to love your enemies. But he says in verse 28, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And similarly, in Matthew 19, Jesus talks about selling all your possessions and giving to the poor. He says in verse 20, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus tells us that we have to be perfect. We have no choice. That is the calling. And of course, we know that in our flesh, we cannot be perfect. His blood covers that. But he does desire that we grow in our perfection. That's why he allows these really hard things to happen to us. They create steadfastness, like we've said. But that steadfastness causes us to grow in perfection. And who is perfect? Jesus. He is using our trials to make us more like him. He is perfect and he is making us perfect too. Second, completion. Completion implies that we don't lack anything. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the peace of himself sanctify you completely. Every single trial we face convinces us a bit more that all we need is God. He created the universe. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He sent his son to die for our sin. Nothing we encounter compares to a God like this. God used my father-in-law, Jerry Webb, powerfully in my life and in the lives of our kids. But Jerry would be the first to tell you that we shouldn't hope in Jerry Webb. We should hope in the sovereign, loving God of the universe. That is completion. What else do we need? Our trials force us to realize that all we need is Jesus. So friends, do not forget our key point. All God's children 
face really hard things. But for God's children, those things lead to Jesus. And before I conclude here, I just want to talk a little bit about what's been going on in our country these last few weeks. I've taken the time to to call a number of my African-American friends these past weeks. I've had lots of conversations. And I've heard a lot of anger. And I've heard a lot of pain. But mostly, I have heard utter exhaustion in their voices. My friends are really tired. And at the same time, as I think about that, and I think about the, the, the African-American Christians that I know, they are some of the most steadfast people that I know. Why? Why is that? My friends, I would submit to you that their steadfastness is a result of enduring a very unique set of trials for 400 years. And then I think about Christians more broadly of any race, of any ethnicity, of any economic class. I think about all Bible-believing Christians in our country. How many of us don't feel like we have a cultural home anymore in mainstream America? Regardless of who you voted for or will vote for, do any of us really feel like we have a political home? How many of us feel like our coworkers are suspicious of us because we're gospel-believing Christians? How many of us feel alienated from the media because we never see anyone on TV or on Netflix who reflects our values? Friends, black Christians I know have been living in this in-between place for generations, and yet they have remained remained steadfast. One of my prayers at this moment is that that very same steadfastness would spread throughout the church. They would spread to all of us and that our black brothers and sisters would lead us in steadfastness. But again, I, I know that many of us are facing other trials as well. COVID has really done a number on us. Some of us have lost jobs. Others have strained relationships because of what's happened. Friends, don't delay in engaging with the Lord during these difficult times. Don't hang your heart and cry, why me? Instead, ask the Lord, what are you doing? How can I trust you more? How can I see you providing and protecting during this time? What idols in my heart, Lord, are you after? Friends, I know your pain is real. Mine is too. A fool would deny that the human condition is anything but fundamentally painful. But a fool would also deny that God can use our pain to grow us closer to Christ. He is that powerful. He's that beautiful. We serve a beautiful, wonderful, sovereign king. Dear God, My prayer is that we, as the church of Jesus Christ, would come to understand these things soon. My prayer is that we would, in the midst of our deep personal and cultural helplessness, come to know the grace and the mercy of God. Dear God, would you do these things and would you do them soon? Amen. 
I love you, church. Have a great day.